Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media marketing is our news editor, Paul Wallbank. Hello, Tim. Our deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. And our senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi, Tim. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to Nine's execs about this week's upfronts, including what a combined Nine and Fairfax will actually look like. Uh, there'll be no ads in Stan. What a director of effectiveness does. The world's just moved on. I mean, effectiveness has got to have been one of the hottest topics that you guys have written about all year. And what's Hawaii Five-O got to do with it anyway? You've just outed yourself as a viewer of Hawaii Five-O. Let's focus on that for a minute. But first, the week's topics. Cosmo Australia closes its doors. Foxtel CMO Andy Lark gets the boot again. Jesus donates his organs in provocative new ad. And Nine brings back sea change. So this, this, this does have a little air of repetitiveness. Bauer Media have announced a magazine closure. Um, this time, though, it's a really big name. It's a Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, uh, home of terrible sex advice. Uh, immediately afterwards, uh, it also emerged that Bauer's general manager of publishing for fashion, luxury, food and home, so most of it, Fiorella DeSanto had resigned. Um, Jersey, like this is one of those significant moments, a big brand name like Cosmo. Yeah, so there was definitely a difference with this one um, when we announced Cosmo was closing compared to some of the other Bauer magazines that we've announced closing kind of relatively recently. Um, from both readers and ex-editors, there was a real statement that Cosmo, you know, was a big important brand in a lot of women's lives especially you know maybe not today I think that was the problem really but in sort of throughout the 90s the noughties it was a big brand in women's lives it it guided them through tricky situations it was you know almost sort of a shoulder to cry on it was a real community but I think the sense that I've gotten from the ex-editors and and also just myself as an ex-Cosmo reader myself, the UK version, not the Australian version, I will add, is that it just slipped away the relevance recently. I mean, we're all online now. Digital is primarily where most of us consume media and the brand just didn't quite make it there as quickly as it should have done, especially in Australia. And you just alluded to it, but I was going to make the point, you know, it's an international brand of which uh, way back in the day, ACP, which went on become to... become Bauer licensed effectively. I mean, the Cosmo brand is just a really well-known brand throughout the world. And that's kind of the the strange thing really is how can a brand that is so well-known and has that immediate recall in people's minds, how can, how can it struggle so hard to survive? But I guess it just goes to show that the power of brand isn't enough in today's publishing landscape. So where did they go wrong online? So this is more of a wider problem with Bauer, actually. Um, Before we came into this podcast, I was just taking a look through the Cosmo websites, the Elle website and the Harper's Bazaar website and sort of scrolling through quite rapidly and flicking between the tabs. I couldn't actually tell which website I was on. They're all 
very very similar content very similar design and it's a bit of a problem that Bauer has had since introducing its now to love um, format where they consolidated a lot of their other brands including brands such as the Australian Women's Weekly, Women's Day, NW and OK they're all kind of on one website but I don't think the consumer actually knows what the now to love brand is and and probably wouldn't seek it out it was a bit of a problem in Bauer with their titles online. Yeah, to your point, Joyce, I used to read Cosmo sort of when I was growing up through high school. And I think the thing, if I think about that now, all that content that I was getting in that magazine is totally available online and not just across Bauer, across PacMags' titles as well. And news.com.au, I think they're really common topics. It's just really easily accessed online. So it's that, you know, why would you pay for the magazine instead? It's something that uh, Mia Friedman said to us. We sort of spoke to us. A lot Former of the, Cosmo editor, yeah, now, so we, now Mamma Mia. We spoke to a lot of the ex-editors of Cosmo um, for a piece just after it closed and she she sort of said the, the real problem that she saw was that at the time the magazine's overlords didn't quite see that Cosmo wasn't just a magazine, it was a brand and that was the problem. They just saw it as a print product and that was it. But really, it's a, a strong brand that could have existed really well on digital if it had been given half a chance. I also think there was a bit of a historical legacy too with uh, ACP's type with 9MSN, which really made that hard when Bauer took that the products over of gearing up that digital. So they probably had a, a hand tied behind their back for some time there. But also there's that generational change too, which Abby's just alluded to. Uh, when our senior reporter Zoe was interviewed on Channel 7, we saw that um, a generational divide between the people that were interviewed that uh, you had uh, ladies in their 30s and 40s and then Zoe in her 20s and you saw that real different generational divide there where it just didn't really have the strength of brand with the younger generation that it did uh, with the 40-somethings. And, and if you think about Cosmo, it is actually a youth publisher. It almost it, it needs to be doing the same things that the youth publishers are doing. In no way could compete with Junkie or Pedestrian or any of those other brands online. And that's really what it had to be doing to survive. We also saw um, a very closely timed departure, um, Fiora DeSanto moving on, um, ex-News Corp, very big in the advertising community. Are we joining the dots between the announcement and her departure? In her statement when she resigned, she didn't obviously say that that was the reason why. I don't think any of us expected her to say that, but it did come sort of two days after the announcement of Cosmo's closure. And she did say she thought now was as good a time as any to resign. So I think we can sort of join the dots on that one a little bit. Next, out with the lark. This week, Foxtel's chief marketing officer, Andy Lark, was ousted after spending less than a year in the role, with the business announcing REA Group's Kieran Cooney as his replacement. Um, Let me throw to you on this one, Paul. Andy Lark, sort of, he's had a few adventures in the tech space as well, hasn't he? Yeah, Tim, his background's in the tech space. Uh, Originally, he was in PR with Fleischmann Hillard before he went across to Sun Microsystems and then really came to prominence with Dell in the early dot-com period when he was the first CMO to start blogging. So he really came to prominence there, then came to Australia. So he's originally a Kiwi, came to Australia to join the Commonwealth Bank, where he was notable for um, the Can campaign. And a short 
um, time on the top as well. That's right, yes. And that was a very interesting period at the Combank there. And uh, then he went on to join Zero, the tech startup, the new, again, New Zealand's tech startup as their global CMO. That sort of accounting software, that sort of thing. Yes, that's right. And uh, probably one of the sexiest stocks on the ASX along with Atlassian. So one of those tech tech stories there. So very much a tech background. So I think um, Andy was a little bit unlucky in that uh, eight days after he was appointed, uh, the then CEO, Peter Tunner, got uh, the boots. So he was the previous regime's guy. Look, I've got a bit, I I feel a little bit conflicted on Andy Lark because it's funny, you know, you, you guys might have experienced as well. People will sort of say to you, oh, it's, it's such and such good at their job. You suddenly think, I actually don't know. I know they're really good for stories and they're really good for copy, but I have no idea whether they're good. And 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 that's the thing with 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 Andy Lark is I've seen him on stage a number of times. He's spoken at a number of our events. Always been very entertaining, very provocative. Always has a point of view. I think quite inspiring. You know, I've seen people sort of you know from the audience say after I'd love to work for him. But equally, you know, wherever he's been, there was that short stint at, at, at Combank in particular. There will be detractors afterwards. Um, why? What, what do you think it is makes him such a divisive character? Well, he's got a period. When you look at his background there, there's usually a two-year period on each of these that uh, he tends to last. So this one was surprisingly short. It was quite interesting at the ADMA forum a few months back. He made a comment about... The performance of an organisation is directly related to how short a tenure the CMO has, which in retrospect, um, whether he was having a dig at um, his pending ousting or uh, uh, whether that's a uh, the harbinger of things to come is is very interesting with that. But uh, I don't actually know anybody who's worked directly under him, so it's hard to really say. I think the interesting thing around that question of being good at your job is it's one thing to be a really good marketer and and to lead sort of really good campaigns and get the best out of your agency, but it's another thing to be a manager. And I think sometimes those two things don't always go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, from what I've gathered from speaking to people in the industry, that uh, that can be or has been seen as being, I suppose, a problem area. Next, what would the Ad Standards Board do? So earlier this week, we saw a rather philosophical question. What would Jesus do? And it attracted an extensive debate in our comment thread. The ad was a promotion for a documentary on organ donation, and it featured two Roman guards telling Jesus or, you know, asking Jesus to donate his organs uh, whilst he was dangling there on the cross. Can I ask you a question? Yes, my son. I am here for you. Literally. Have you thought about maybe becoming an organ donor? Is this really the best time to bring this up? We get it. You know, no one wants to talk about death. But, you know, not all of us are going to the uh, eternal paradise and... uh... Obviously, I would do it. I'm Jesus. So, Abby, what what, what was the story behind the story on this one? It was... uh, I quite enjoyed writing this one and I did quite enjoy watching it. A fair few times too. But yeah, as you've explained there, Tim, basically, um, the ad is for a promotion, um, for a documentary called Dying to Live by Richard Todd. Um, and, and it's promoing the documentary and it's essentially getting people to register to donate because a lot of people have flagged that they want to donate their organs when they pass away but don't actually register. So that's sort of the crux of the campaign there. However, um, using Jesus was 
controversial to say the least um, in our comment thread and certainly through social media as well. Um, I got the feeling it wasn't our usual crowd. <laughs> I would definitely agree with you there, Tim, because I actually thought it was a good promo. I thought it was it was well shot. It, it was funny. It, you know, it made me think about registering to donate. It made me think about wanting to watch the documentary, which is, you know, everything an ad is supposed to do. So from an advertising perspective, I actually thought it was um, quite brilliant. And do you think that the, the Christians who've taken offence at it are correct to do so? Like, is it possible to be a Christian and choose not to take offence at that ad? Yeah, I absolutely do think it is. There are people on our comment thread who sort of have flagged that they are religious and they are Christian, but it's 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 funny. It's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, and I think that's obviously what it was intended to do. I think the ad was definitely intended to be controversial, um, you know, for the – for the ad standards and sort of to get publicity there. I seem to remember it had the word when they sent out the original press release, bloody blah appears in controversial ad, which is always one of those slightly controversing, debating <laughs> things to do. That's right. And one of the things though that I took from it watching it though was that message that you're not automatically on the organ donor registry if you don't have it on the driver's license, which I was aware of, but I know a lot of people haven't been aware of that change in recent years. So it was getting an important message across there. Now, whether that of course is going to affect all of the angry Christians who now drop off the uh, organ registries is another question. Yes, yeah, so I think the, 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 one of those messages was that apart from in South Australia, you're no longer automatically on the driving licence, wasn't it? Yeah, whereas you used to have that option in all the other states. So question, uh, poll around the table, everybody here in favour of organ donation intend to do so themselves? Yeah. 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 And has everyone around the table taken the steps to register? Yeah, I've thought about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's no. been a busy week, Tim. None of you. <laughs> well, you're all a disgrace. Yeah. Um, Tim, for the record, you? you're registered. For the record, yes, I have. Oh, there you go. I did it some time ago. I think another interesting thing to, to mention around this and the Ad Standards Board is that I did speak with the Ad Standards Board um, earlier in the week and there have already been complaints about the ad and uh, – I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was banned online. Um, I know that they're not going to ban it on TV because it only appeared in things like the project. And so therefore it doesn't actually really count as, as being a television ad. But, um, I think when you look at meat and livestock Australia's summer ad campaign that was banned for putting plate on, um, the Hindu god, Lord Ganesha, um, and it was banned. I think the words that it used was, um, MLA gave inadequate consideration to how seriously some Australians take their religious views. And that was last summer's ad. Correct. And that was the one that initially was they ruled it was okay, but then they overruled themselves. Yeah, they got they got a um a second opinion in to, to sort of have another look because there was quite a bit of backlash there. So I wouldn't be surprised if this ad was in fact banned as well. Yes, and it was uh, the thing that created the most offence was this suggestion that Lord Ganesha was perhaps eating meat in the ad. Yeah, when um it's supposed to be vegetarian. Next, Sea Change is back. And finally, Nine announced its programming slate for 2019 this week, including the return of late 90s, early noughties drama Sea Change. Tim, you went along to the Nine upfronts on Wednesday night. What did you think? Look, it's worth making the point upfront if you've not been along. They're quite something. 
hundreds of people, lots of familiar faces from the media industry, marketers, etc. Obviously, lots of nine personnel, sprinkling of TV personalities, a few sport personalities. This time it was at Fox Studios in, in Sydney. So big, swanky ceremony. Now, it's also one of those things, whatever symbols you want to see, you can see. Literally, the very first thing before I walked in was a giant sign for Titanic, the exhibition. Uh, and I'm glad to say that that wasn't a portent of things to come. It was a very, uh, it was a very um, impressive, slick presentation. Um, chat to a few media agency bosses afterwards. Um, first one I chatted, the first thing he said was, they dropped a lot of coin on this, mate. Um, and, and, and I think they did. You know, it, it was a, it was absolutely a, a show of strength, a show of power, which is one of those, one of those reasons for doing the upfronts and the TV networks do them particularly well. We've got sevens and tens to come in the next few weeks as well. So, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll see them doing those same things. Um, and it, it, it was notable. We'll be, be chatting to some of the execs from nine very shortly. But it was notable for there were a relatively small number of surprising announcements, you know, I guess because they, you know, the big deal of the year was done some time ago, which was uh, nine picking up the tennis, seven picking up the cricket. So that that was clearly no big surprise to be had there, although, of course, they talked about it. Um, but I, I suppose there was only one really major piece of programming announcement that people didn't know about already, which was... Uh, which was, as, as you say, Josie, the return of sea change, um, which it was kind of interesting having the conversation in the office for those who were familiar with it. Um, uh, and we, we got the announcement under embargo a few hours before the uh, before the event. Um, Paul, I, I, I detected in the newsroom that afternoon that you weren't necessarily a fan of sea change. I loathed sea change of the passion <laughs> then. And I loathe the announcement now. I, I really think uh, at the time it was um, retirement fantasies for baby boomers. And now quite a few of those baby boomers are retiring. I, I'm guessing it's now more a reality TV show. The, the fact they're bringing back the same cast, I think, really shows just uh, how backward looking, if you like, this um, this this is but Sigrid uh, Thornton, John Howard. That's right. Twenty and, years old. Wonderful actors, but we not could the be John doing Howard, obviously. That's right. But we could be doing something a little bit better, I think. But uh, yeah, that show. Uh, I tried to explain it to the younger members of the team, and both my eyes and their eyes were glazing over after about forty-five seconds. And, and the idea of it is big city folk who moved to the move moved to a quieter life. On that's the beach. right, with all the quaint country folk and characters out there. So I have to come to its defence, or certainly the defence of its of its prospects. It got by far the biggest round of applause on the night. So I went into the room, your words, your very negative words <laughs> ringing in my ears about baby boomer fantasy. It went down really well with the audience. Now, maybe there were a few baby boomers in the audience, but it got the biggest round of applause of the night. Um these are the people who are going to be spending money on ads. This is true, but then again, they're probably the people looking at retiring to the country in the very near future. Next, Zoe and I will be chatting to Michael Stevenson and Lizzie Young from Nine about the detail of some of those announcements.
Joining us now in Mumbrella House, we have two of Nine's senior executives, Chief Sales Officer Michael Stevenson, known as Steve-O to most of the industry, and Nine's Group Content Strategy Director, Lizzie Young. We're breaking down the year just gone, uh, some of the major announcements that came up at this year's Nine Upfronts this week. Also with me, our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Steve-O, Lizzie, big year, cricket changed hands, tennis changed hands. There was the small matter of the forthcoming merger with Nine and Fairfax. I'm reckoning it's TV's biggest year in a decade, isn't it? It's certainly been a an enormous year for Nine, of course. Um, and I think, you know, what we're doing as a business is changing quickly to meet the changing needs of our audiences and uh, and our advertisers, obviously. So a lot, of, um, a lot of environmental change. Obviously, legislation changed a couple of years ago, which has created the, the opportunity for, for businesses like ours to, to join with others and hopefully create greater value for our shareholders and, and, um, and greater value for advertisers. So that's fascinating. Of course, sports rights at the, um, only a few months ago, that was another, another big change. After 40 years of, of us broadcasting the summer of cricket, of course, we still have cricket within our, within our schedule. I was going to say, now the you The ashes in the middle of the year. <laughs> I was going to say, now you don't like cricket anymore, but of course you do still like the ashes, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, we have the ashes in the middle of, in the middle of uh, next year, obviously, and uh, Warner and Smith, it'll be their first game back for Australia um, in the UK, so that'll be fascinating to watch. Of course, we have the 2020 World Cup and the Limited Overs World Cup as well. So in addition to the tennis, which we'll see in, um, on 9 in January... Uh, a whole range of sport. So we'll get into exciting. the sport properly in a few minutes. Lizzie, you're you're in a big year. What what's really stood out for you? Yeah, I think you're right, Tim. Yes, it's been a big year for Nine, but it has been a big year for the industry as a whole. It's been the year where BVOD has really taken hold. BVOD broadcast video, video on, on demand. demand. So we're seeing that consumption of our content maintain itself simply on a different device. Um, and I think, you know, you've seen new ownership in other parts of the landscape as well. Um, and, of course, we're all looking at ways to reach our audience in more interesting ways using other platforms. And, you know, the big thing is what can we do for brands? And certainly those conversations with brands, um, you know, I think we're now at the point where it's big reach and that precision of digital, which is coming together, which has been a great a great thing to see. Well, look, this is a, a, a good starting point to get into video on demand. Um, and let's let's get some of the definitions out of the way as well, because I'm sure we're throwing around BVOD and AVOD. My understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, is BVOD is effectively, that's, that's premium video on demand, stuff that the big networks have paid for. There we go. So st- um, st- Steve-O is uh, trying to turn off his Apple Watch, <laughs> but, um, uh, but there you go, you know. Just showing off how technically he is. is. Absolutely, <laughs> he's yes. not showing off. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the great thing about the podcast is we, we, we can run as live, so we'll probably leave it in. So, <laughs> so yeah. So could have been a booking, Tim. It could have been a booking. Exactly. <laughs> Always prioritise the customer. So, um, broadcast video on demand. I guess we would define as paid for by the network. So, a, a slightly higher production value. And then that's a subset of AVOD, Advertising Video On Demand. Would we describe it that way? Look, I think we've gone with BVOD as an industry because that is the, the content that you would see broadcast on, you know, in, in big broadcast platforms. AVOD has really started to probably go a bit by the wayside. It was actually the term that we started with and it was about it being advertising supported. And it's not really about that. It's about 
broadcast video and the, the quality that you can expect for it. So I think we've redefined that market now and really the terminology is BVOD and then, of course, SVOD with players like Netflix, Netflix and Stan. Because the word advertising is such a grubby word. <laughs> I just think this, you know, it's important this sort of clear uh, differentiation between professionally produced uh, broadcast quality content and user generated content. So that's the, I think that's the fundamental, the fundamental difference. Now, one of the things you've touched on this week um, is the, the sort of the, I guess the 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 summer love strategy. This idea that um, at a time when maybe we're out of the official ratings season and people might be be turning to a little bit more to video on demand, that's one of the points of emphasis for this week for you. Yeah, I mean, Nine Now is a, is a critical part of our, of our overall business strategy. Um, we've got a really clear strategy at Nine, which is create great Australian content, distribute it broadly across every platform to engage audiences and advertisers. And of course, Nine Now is a, is a critical part of that. I don't see the survey year in the traditional sense anymore. You know, we have television ratings from the 1st of January till the 31st of December every year. So why are there 40 weeks of the, the official ratings year then? I think in a traditional legacy sense there are, but, you know, we have, like I said, we have advertisers and con- advertisers buying audiences from us and content both on air and on obviously in an on-demand and digital sense every day of the year. But you're, Austin, you're on the Austin board. You could change it if you wanted to. Yeah, but while Austin measure those audiences, of course, from the 1st of January to the 31st of December as well. So, again, create great content, distribute it broadly. Nine Now is a critical part of that, investing into content for that platform um, to deliver the greatest aggregate audience is, is a big part of what we're doing. And, of course, our investment, um, you know, as we've announced, uh, more content onto that platform for Australians of all ages to engage on the device of their choice is a, is a big step forward. And I think, Tim, back to your point about advertising, the piece for us that's really crucial is that we are seeing clients who want to be integrated into our broadcast video on demand and that premium quality product. And that also goes to that notion of why BVOD as a definition is important as opposed to it being user-generated content. This year, you guys launched Love Island Australia on Nine Now. It was a joint commission between Nine Now and Nine Go. Go. Don't want to get that wrong. Nine Life is where Talking Married is. Um, what did that tell you about the way that your audience was changing? So we're talking about a really particular audience there, 16 to 39-year-olds. They have become slightly difficult to find for, for people, for both you know us and also for brands. And actually what it showed us is that the kind of content that we create is still meaningful to them. They still want to engage in it. They just want to do it on their terms, on a device of their choosing. And that's why you saw pretty much 50% of that audience happen on digital and then 50% happen on linear. So there's mass opportunity then when you're looking at, and and we can talk about the programming slate, um, I'm sure in a few minutes, but when you're looking at the way that you're commissioning programs or deciding what to put on different platforms, it now obviously provides this opportunity to target different people in different areas. That's right. And look, that one was a test to, to, to sense check audiences wanting to consume that kind of content. It's worked. We've proven it. And that's why Love Island will be on main channel nine in prime time next year. You guys, year to date, across the demographics, are number one, excluding the Olympics and Com Games. I want to have a discussion around, you know, why we exclude things or we, we talked about why we, you know, do a 40, 40 week ratings year anyway. But when we're talking about, you know, different shows, if you've commissioned something or you spend a mass bit of money, 
why that's not included when we're talking about, you know, how different networks are performing? Yeah, so, you know, the when you have a one-off event, whether that's the Commonwealth Games, the Winter Olympics or, or any other major major sporting event, um, the advertisers that buy inventory into those events, obviously the recipient of the ratings that, um, that they deliver um, at that point in time. Of course, those events aren't repeated in the following year. So when advertisers are looking to buy inventory into the future, clearly they don't use those historical ratings. So that's the reason why historically they've been excluded from all analysis um, and they should continue continue to, to be so, um, notwithstanding the fact that great sport like the tennis, um, the NRL or any other sport that might be on television, freeware television, are great for audiences because they aggregate live viewers, um, live audiences, and that's really powerful for brands and advertisers. So how, they how should much, continue. How much do you think that customers, advertisers actually care who's number one, who's number two at any given time. Surely they just want to know how their ads are going to go and what sort of audience they're going to find in a specific time slot, for instance. Yeah, and I I think you're right. You know, at, at nine, certainly, we're very respectful of our traditional competitors in Seven and Ten and Foxtel. Um, and having a healthy broadcast television ecosystem is, is really important. But, you know, I, I spend far more of my time thinking about new competitors um, and what they might be doing and how we should be um, ultimately adjusting our business to attract advertisers and audiences. I think as well the world's become more complex now and it's not just about the scale, Tim. It's about the scale, the engagement and what you can do with it. So scale is still important but it's not the only thing that matters. And Talk- I think, I think Tim, you know, there's sort of – I think we've had this realisation at nine over the sort of the last period of time that – we kind of we don't compete with Facebook and, and Google because they don't have content and we do. And kind of we're competitive with the traditional set, but we're trying to do things differently to those guys. So from from our, from our perspective, we just want to be the best nine that we can be, and that means continually evolving our business to meet the needs of audiences and advertisers. And if we can do that, then it doesn't really matter. So talk me through your habit, both of you, at, at five past nine each morning when the ratings come in. What do you do? What do you look for first? What's the number you look for first? Be honest. <laughs> well, actually, well, my the first report that I will look at is at 2 a.m. in the morning because that's the first revenue say, that's report. That's a very late start to the day. So if we could make that happen. That's the first <laughs> revenue report that comes through. So I'm, I'm pretty obsessed by that sort of stuff. But, of course, you know, our guys look at the overnight ratings, but that is only looking at the consumption of our content through one, one lens. Of course, there's there's overnights, there's consolidated, there's encore performances, there's what's happening in BVOD. So when you look at look for first though, so the biggest winning winning in the demos, I would say. Yeah, it's the demos, and it's mainly because they're an indicator, and because they're like on like and relative to years gone by, and you can compare yourself to the equivalent show somewhere else. You know, in the same time slot, they're they're an indicator, and then you follow the journey as. It gets, you know, a piece of content gets consumed on nine now or whatever. But I think the starting point is in the demos and total people. What's what are the shows done? It can tell a really different story, actually. Like I'll, I'll look at a show and it maybe didn't make or didn't perform that well in the top twenty uh, from Obstown, which we receive every morning. Although we can probably see the top one hundred, but then you'll look in the sixteen to thirty nines or eighteen to forty nines, where you're actually saying that you, you've suggested in a previous interview that you're targeting, and all of a sudden you're number one in there. That's so right. It really can differ um, depending on the. There morning. isn't one number. It's sort of a collection of of, of pieces of the puzzle, really. But it would be fair to say that 
we're only interested in the demographics that matter most to advertisers. So 1639, 2554, grocery buyers with children, they're the three demographics where the majority of advertising is spent. So that's what our program is programmed towards from a television content perspective. And I suppose hence back to your earlier question, what do you look for first? How did we go last night in those demographics? How did the content that we create for those demographics perform? And how pure was the audience that they all delivered? Because, of course, there is a total people number out there as well, and those numbers generally um, aggregate the 55-pluses and 65-pluses. That's not a focus for us um, because it's not a focus for the for advertisers and we don't receive briefs for those targets. That's that's the rationale. Are you still more interested in primary channel share versus total network share across all channels? Uh, <laughs> we, look at, we look at both. Um, of course, the vast majority of advertising revenue is spent on the main channel in prime time. Um, you know, it's it's a significant percentage of our of our uh, revenue and seven percent of our inventory. So that's a, that's a huge focus. But of course, so are they. So is off peak on nine and the multi channels as well. So we we look at both, um, and both are important for different for different reasons. I get the sense that seven leans slightly more towards that multi channel argument than you do. And that's a question you'd have to ask the guys at the guys at seven. Um, and, you know, as I said, like the vast majority of okay, our content investment way. goes I, into prime time on nine. <laughs> Let me ask it this way then. I get the sense that you lean less towards <laughs> multi-channel than seven does. I definitely do because all the shows that I, you know, I work on in those big content partnerships and client solutions, broadly speaking, are the shows on the main channel. So there is definitely parts of our schedule where we are highly focused on that area. But then, of course, you know, television has been traded since the beginning of time across schedule to reach a, a variety of different audiences, and that still happens today. The high, I mean, the higher ratings are delivered in prime time on Nine and in live sport, and Nine Galaxy is a great way, of course, to to look after everything else because they are low ratings, and and that's one of the reasons why we've invested into that into that technology, I guess. And Nine Galaxy is a way of buying across the platforms, exactly. Well, while we're on the topic of Nine Galaxy and content, we might as well address the the TV upfronts this week. But before we get into that, I was wondering for our listeners who um, maybe have never been to a TV upfront, what is the actual purpose of them these days? I know there's a debate that maybe we shouldn't have them and they're tedious. Why do people go to upfronts? They're tedious? What's like, your no, I, I didn't, not that? my words, commenters' words. Have you not read our comment thread before? I, I, it's not my own words. I love going to the upfronts. They're very fun. <laughs> Uh, so upfronts are an, a, a global tradition in this industry where the networks basically share with the industry their plan for the coming year. Um, the American model actually sees all of the inventory or about 80% of their inventory then traded off the back of it. Now, that doesn't happen in Australia. What we see it as is the chance for us to showcase to our agency partners and our clients um, the media and investors and, and other partners that we work with, um, what we are doing at Nine through the lens that's important to them. And that's a big focus for us this year. Um, as you will have seen, we've really talked about what's happening at Nine and how brands can leverage what we've got to offer. When I was looking at uh, this year's lineup, it felt like very consistent. I said this last year, Nine felt very consistent in their programming. And I know that that might just be because uh, last year we haven't seen the 10 or 7 upfronts yet, but last year 10 hadn't been bought by CBS and 7 had an entire back end of the year to 
fill with new programming. What are the highlights for you guys this year? Maybe, Lizzie, you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, to your point about consistency, I think what you saw last year, you know, we've been on a journey now and it's about two and a half years long of rebuilding our schedule and having depth and consistency across the year. So that's what you saw last year. Fortunately for us, those shows are working. We've had a real focus on uh, family co-viewing at 7.30, so those sort of platform shows as we call them. So the likes of Married at First Sight, I mean, it couldn't have gone more swimmingly well for us. It's an absolute cultural phenomenon, a juggernaut, two million people, amazing, Ninja Warrior, The Voice, um, The Block, they're, they're all those big shows that we see. We are really thrilled to have been able to launch Lego Masters. Um, I think, you know, that is a show that is built off a global brand, a much-loved brand. It spans the test of time with audiences, whether you've got an obsessed four-year-old, as I do, or equally um, dads who love building it with their kids and then you've got all the different characters now. So that's a really big show that I think will really work well for us here. Um, And, of course, Nine has always been the home of amazing Australian drama and next year we will have three dramas in our slate and I think, as you saw, that that lineup and just getting people involved, telling those Australian stories is something, it's a very emotional connection to the audience that they absolutely love. And that's a question on dramas. Um, it felt a year or two ago as if the day of the drama, if not gone, was was going out of cycle. It felt like they weren't doing the numbers in the same way. I remember going to the Screen Forever um, conference a couple of years back and, you know, there were warnings from the stage that Australian had run out of famous people to do dramas about. Um, what's rebalanced? Yeah, what's, re- what's put it back again? Yeah, it's interesting and I think it's a fair observation. I mean, drama is incredibly expensive to make. Um, I dispute that Australia's run out of, of talented actors and actresses. I think actually... the famous people to make the stuff about. Oh, to make it about. Um, so I think that... That's about telling stories that are based on real life. There are, of course, also the stories we tell just about the Australian way of life. And Dr. Doctor is an example of that um, that I think has probably flies in the face of, of, what, of the, what that trend was a few years ago. And, you know, I mean, that cast of that are fantastic and it's certainly something the audience are loving. And how do you think about whether a drama is successful or not, the sort of numbers you look at? Has that changed? Um, the total numbers hasn't changed. It's just how it's being consumed has changed. And, yes, we see a lot of viewing on our Nine, um, Nine Now platform. And, Steve, how do, you, how do you sell a drama story to a client? So I think there's the there's, Australians love great stories. So there's this deeper engagement, I think, with great Australian stories and, and our drama slate and drama generally allows you to do that. So when we're going to advertisers, we're really talking about about that deeper level of engagement that they receive in terms of buying buying inventory in and around that type of that type of show. I think over time we can do a much better job of helping brands to tell their story within that content. You know, one of the things that Lizzie and I are spending a lot of time on is how do we get to market early enough to allow brands to be able to be a part of the storytelling, given that drama is obviously produced with significant lead times. So that's a, I think that's a great opportunity for, for us. And I suppose when you do that, so you're saying making making the brand a part of the story in some way, presumably there's also then a challenge of being respectful to the audience while you're doing that. Yeah, no, I mean that that happens whether it's a drama or it's married at first sight. It's you know the audience must the audience must feel like the the integration for brands is is authentic, 
and um, and we'll always put the audience first when that when that happens. I always think of that episode of Hawaii Five O where they spent five minutes talking about how delicious the Subway sandwich was. <laughs> I, I, I never could, saw you've that. just outed yourself as a viewer of Hawaii oh. Five O. Let's focus on that for a minute. Well, look, it was highly infamous at the time, and with, with a bit of luck through the magic of technology, Josie will play in a clip about, about this point. The Subway sandwich. So ono. Okay, so you're eating these to lose weight. Is that, is that right? It worked for Jared, and that boy was large. But the best thing about it, they make it anywhere you want it. Check this one. It's sweet onion chicken teriyaki with jalapenos and banana peppers. Now you put that with this, turkey BLT, bam! It's from serious culinary fusion. So how many of these did you order? Five. Five footlongs. It was a good deal. It was uh, that, I guess, was something of a kind of low spot. But 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 yeah, how how does a conversation like that happen in terms of integrating a brand into the into the content? Yes, well, I think that 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 word around authenticity is really really important. And I think brands have the relationships that we have with brands and the types of work that we do with them has evolved so much in the last couple of years that the last thing that a brand wants to do is be in a position in a piece of our content that doesn't feel right. And so they're very realistic around how we should integrate them in into our content and the sort of role that they want to play. And I think that's been that's that's been a really exciting evolution of the of the 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 responsibility and the roles that we all play in making sure that the content that we create is still engaging for audiences because ultimately that's the most important thing. I was going to ask just quickly but I guess you'll contradict me now because we've talked so much about drama, but I did speak I can't remember which week of the podcast that I did speak about this, but we were talking about this idea of reality television leading free-to-air programming. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are consumers, not myself in the lovely media bubble, talking about, you know, the only thing they see on TV is reality TV now. Is that where it lies or is it a more of a case of balance in a schedule with things like drama? It's absolutely a balance. Australia is a unique market in the world, though, where stripped reality franchises, that, that multi-night um, week, long programming, it works. And we see that time and time again. Look at how many people watch The Block for 13 weeks. I was going to ask about The Block. Surely each year you think, oh, we can't do another year with The Block. It can't keep going. And then it does. Why Why does it keep going? So I think it's it's got all the things. Um, it's, got, it's got so many different elements to it that make it a success at its absolute heart it is based around the great australian dream and the thing with the block that is so fantastic is that even if you can't actually go and afford a house you rent and you can get styling tips from it and then if you're an eight-year-old kid you want to see what the kids bedrooms are going to look like so that you can harass mum and dad to give you that bedroom and if you're downsizing or upsizing or flipping there's just something in the block for everyone and the other thing that has really driven its success is arguably the biggest character is the house itself or the property. And we've been fortunate to find some amazing properties. And as you've seen, next year's is even bigger than the one we currently have in the Gatwick. And then, of course, there's the cast, you know, a great lineup with Scotty Cam and Shelley Craft and the judges and then also the blockheads and really getting that drama in the contestant mix right. So there's, there's a multiple reasons why the block works. So a couple of challenges to talk about. There was an article in one of the Sunday papers, I think it was probably the Sunday Telegraph, certainly in Sydney, which was talking about each of the networks and the chat programming challenges they faced. So they, they identified for 10 ratings issues, for uh, seven. Can you remember what, what seven's challenge was, Zoe? They had something for seven. 
Um, I, I dared not guess because I think that opens me up to a lot of criticism. <laughs> anyway, for, for, for nine, the two they identified were today, ongoing coverage of Carl, softening in ratings and footy show, what to do next year. How are you thinking about those two challenges? So I think we've been um, clear that, yes, the Today Show is an ongoing challenge for us and that's something that Hugh has asked the team to turn their attention to. Um, The audience clearly has an expectation and we need to deliver on it and we need to do better. What the Today Show does at its heart is great community broadcasting. Have a look at what they did for um, farmer aid. Like Raising that amount of money is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, So there is definitely improvements that need to happen there. Just quickly, I know that we were um, I'm wary of time, but also we've talked a lot about programming. One of the other focuses that you were talking about at this this week's upfronts were to do with Nine Galaxy, Nine Powered and this idea of premium partnerships. Why is such a focus this year on that? So for very different reasons. So maybe I'll go first and then, I'll, and then Lizzie can answer the second part. So, you know, uh, 12 months ago at our, at our upfronts, we launched Nine Galaxy. We had this desire to make buying television easier than ever before. And, you know, we stand here 12 months on and I think it's, I think it's fair to say that it's delivered against that. Our, our technology guys and our partners have done an outstanding job in making that product what it is today. And obviously at our upfronts, we've announced the development roadmap out till the end of 2020, which I'm really excited about. Our company's backed this, it's fully funded, and we're on a journey. So three, three important things happen. By the end of this year, we will integrate Nine Now into Nine Galaxy. So you'll be able to buy our audience through one technology, wherever that audience is consuming the content. That's a really big deal. Um, second of all, by the middle of next year, we'll integrate our 7 million unique signed-in customers um, that are accessing Nine Now and the Virtual Oz database into Nine Galaxy. So you'll be able to buy an audience segment like a new car buyer or a home loan tender, as well as an agent sex demographic, again, across our channels, which again is a really big deal. And then the third piece that we announced um, is the ability for us to deliver an audience agnostically across every one of our inventory sources, whether that's uh, live linear, live streaming, BVOD on a connected television or any other mobile device um, in real time using technology that exists nowhere else in the world. That is, um, I'm so excited by that because that puts Australia well and truly on the global on the global stage. And how big an advertiser do you have to be to access that sort of thing? So Nine Galaxy is currently being used by all of our agency, uh, all of our agency partners, and and many of our direct clients and independent agencies. So that that exists today. Of course, what I did also announce, which um, you know again is a, a, a big deal for us because it's it is leading the way from an innovation point of view, is a thing called Nine Voyager which opens our business up into to the SME market. Now, that's historically been the domain of Facebook and, and, um, and Google. Um, so we will allow um, small to medium enterprise businesses to, to create a dynamic schedule using Nine Voyager straight into our technology system, create a campaign and book that and pay, pay for that via um, their credit card or PayPal, which and is again, quite cool. And this is all platforms, so that could include on broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. So they'll be able to buy a schedule across any of our four linear television channels or nine now as we roll that into Galaxy by the end of the year um, and give them access to all of our inventory. They'll be able to buy it and book it from the comfort of their lounge room. Without talking to a human. Without talking to a human. We'll have to give that a go. (laughs) 
That's we'll dangerous. Take, You've just we'll opened him up we'll to take advertising. Maybe you'll see an ad from Umbrella on um, Nine. We'd now. love to see that. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, that's all well and good. How would this have all come together if you didn't have compulsory sign-in on Nine now? So two and a half years ago, we asked people to do that. And we stand here today. We've got 7 million signed-in subscribers. So that allows us to deliver an addressable advertising solution. So the only way you can deliver addressable advertising is if you have a signed-in user. And that creates this really unique one-to-one people-based marketing opportunity for brands. So we wouldn't have been able to deliver sort of audience-based buying across Nine Now in an addressable sense if we didn't have those signed-in users. So critically important I guess is I guess is the answer and we're seeing that grow um, at a rapid rate of knots so it's a it's been a huge success story so once the merger with Fairfax happens and you get your hands on Stan as well would you like to insert a few ads into Stan uh, there'll be no ads in Stan um, it's a very different we speak about SVOD versus AVOD before you know the rights that we have for that platform are around um, subscription video on demand so um, no ads in Stan it was worth a try just to <laughs> go on the fishing uh, expedition. Um, I think we should talk about sport a little bit more. Um, how are you thinking about tennis? So I'll answer that in two ways, I suppose. First of all, um, you know, we will do we will do a different job uh, with tennis than you've seen historically. You know, tennis um, has four fundamental pillars to that. There was, of course, the tennis, but there's also children. Uh, there's food and there's music. And our, our strategy is how do we bring those four pillars to life through the Festival of Summer? So the Today Show and Wide World of Sports and our news broadcasts will all, all be done on ground. Nine Honey will be active on the ground and we'll bring the Australian Open experience to life for consumers and audiences all across Australia as if you were right there in Melbourne. So that's that's pretty exciting, I think, for audiences. Of course, our commentary team is amazing and that's pretty exciting. John McEnroe joining us is a is a pretty incredible pretty incredible coup. But outside of outside of that, I think you know I got back to when Hugh joined our company and he sat down with Lizzie and I and said, "What would you like?" And we said, 16 to 39s, 2554s and grocery buyers, and we need to start the year really strong and continue." And I kind of feel like 2019 is the culmination of all of that work because we've had married at first sight in from February for a couple of years now, and that is the success that it is. And for the very first time, we have a lead-in, which is the Australian Open, which gives you more consecutive nights of high, of high, of high rating um, linear television content. I don't think there's anything that rivals that anywhere. Straight into Married at First Sight. So great consumer experience, great advertiser experience, and no better promotional platform for Married at First Sight than the Australian Open. Just finally, we, we talked a bit about Nine Galaxy, but I think the other end of the question was to you, Lizzie, about Nine Powered. And where the focus or why the focus was there at this year's Upfronts? So over the last um, probably five years, we have put a lot of emphasis in um, developing premium partnerships with clients and really we're now at the point where that has become a significant portion of our our revenue um, pie, if you like, and the focus for next year is effectively doubling down on that. We've announced the appointment of a director of effectiveness within the Powered team who will literally be working with our clients to demonstrate the effectiveness of these big partnerships. The Block is the perfect example of a platform that we have for clients that exists on linear, 
on um, video on demand, in social, um, and also that a client can leverage the IP of, and it can work for clients with budgets of all different sizes. But it is just one of our shows and we have a whole raft more that can all offer offer those opportunities to clients and that's what we're really focusing on and then improving the effectiveness of those partnerships. So just so I'm clear, if I was McCafe, for instance, your new Director of Effectiveness, Jonathan Fox is his name. That's right. So once you've done the campaign or the blocks run and all of that, it's his job then to go, this is how – it sounds like such a posh title, Director of Effectiveness. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> so what we're working with um, at the moment is what modelling he's going to be using to work with clients to literally demonstrate the effectiveness through sales uplift. Um, let's take an example for next year and let's I might use the block. So imagine you are uh, Suncorp, you're in the block and you have had um, your ads have been in, in the actual show And then you can also see um, through another partner of ours in the block domain that someone's gone on and had a look at some of the content from the block and maybe that Alice has curated and that they're looking for a house and that you then want to be able to sign them up for a home loan. So it's there's a variety of different things we'll look at um, in terms of of uplift for different different clients. Great. And and why hasn't that been done sooner? I mean, it feels like a role that should have been around forever. we've been grappling with measurement for quite some time and effectiveness of campaigns like this. And, you know, traditionally we've done a lot of sponsorship um, effectiveness, if you like, like brand recall and how many times have you seen our logo and those sorts of things. The world's just moved on. I mean, effectiveness has got to have been one of the hottest topics that you guys have written about all year. Um, And I think, you know, we absolutely see it. The onus is on us to demonstrate, you know, why these partnerships are worth the investment because they are time consuming. They are a big undertaking for a client. And the more we can put in place um, from a support, you know, point of view and the more expertise we can bring to the table, hopefully that is making it easier for clients to work with us. Well, that is about where we have to leave it. It's probably been your busiest week of the year. So, Michael and Lizzie, thank you very much for finding the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thank you for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes. That's not too much to ask or wherever you find your podcasts. That helps other people find it too. That's all for now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks, Tim. Toodle pet. I'm really gifted, so I don't need to hear my own voice. I hope we've got Let's a recording that. of that. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we already rolling at this point, Josie? <laughs> this is the best Mumbrella well, podcast that's ever happened. So that, that line, I'm really gifted, so I don't need to hear my own voice. That, that's the outro, I think, right there. I hope you stuff up Toodle Pop again. We're good now. <laughs> <laughs>